millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who like a good, solid to base their policy present decisions, but after extensive community consultation, we'll probably end up settling on a compromise policy present that leaves all stakeholders equally dissatisfied and wondering whether they will return the policy in their New Year's sales. Tumbleweed. (laughs) (laughs) There's just a lot of policy in base. I'm Martin Pierce, and Policy Forum Pod is produced at Crawford School, the region's leading graduate policy school. You can find out more about us at crawford.anu.edu.au. This is our last pod for 2018, sad face, and as such, it's going to be a little bit special. Like A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, today you are going to be visited by the ghosts of policy, past, present and future, and I don't mean my fellow panellists here today. Over the last two weeks, we sent around Policy Forum's Sophie Riddell as a roving reporter to hear from some academics here at the Australian National University. So let's hear from Sophie out on the road about what she's been up to. Sophie Riddell here. I've been scouring the ANU campus over the last two weeks to find answers to three questions. What have been the worst policy decisions of the recent past? What have been the policy highlights of 2018? And what new policies would help to improve the world in 2019? The answers to these questions have been diverse to say the least. From almost 30 academics, I've heard almost every policy issue imaginable. From foreign aid to fire prevention, drought policy to discrimination, social media to international security. So thanks for that, Sophie. And today you're going to hear about what our ANU academics had to say to those big questions. But you're also going to hear from almost all of Policy Forum Pod's rotating lineup of presenters. As a listening experience, it's going to be a bit like making your way through a work Christmas party. You'll hear a cacophony of voices, some new, some familiar, and leave you with more than enough policy pudding to see you through to the new year. So the episode is going to be divided into two parts. In part Part one, I'm going to be leading a discussion with Sharon Bessel, Quentin Grafton, Jill Shepard and Yulia Ahrens, and we'll be taking a look at policy past and present. Then in part two, Nikki Lovegrove will replace me in the hot seat and he'll be leading a discussion with Sue Regan, Quentin Grafton, Jill Shepard and Maya Bandari on the ghost of policy future. Sound confusing? Don't worry, it's all going to be made clear. Just sit back, grab some mulled wine, enjoy the festivities, and see if you don't come away with some policy resolutions for 2019. But before we get into that, a quick reminder that we are really keen to get your thoughts on what we talk about today or on any of our podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society. Hit us up on Twitter, where we are Apps Policy Forum, or just shoot us through an email, podcast at policyforum.net. We absolutely love hearing from you. So now let me properly introduce the panel for this first section. 
First up, Quentin Grafton is a professor of economics and an ANU public policy fellow at Crawford School. He's also editor-in-chief of Policy Forum. So my boss, welcome, Quentin. Merry Christmas. And a Merry Christmas to you. Dr. Jill Shepard is a political scientist at the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University. Welcome, Jill. Thanks, Martin. You didn't wish me a Merry Christmas. I, it's the 5th of December. <laughs> I can't be thinking about Christmas yet. It's very busy. I'm sorry, in Woolworths, they're playing Christmas carols, they're selling <laughs> men's pies. It's Christmas. Sharon Bessel, you should all be very familiar with. Uh, she is the director of the Children's Policy Centre at Crawford School. She's the ANU lead on the IDM project, which we've talked about on previous podcasts. And she's also editor of Policy Forum's Poverty in Focus section. Welcome, Sharon. Hi, Martin. Merry Christmas, seasons, greetings, happy holidays. Happy Festivus to you. Thank you. <laughs> and last but certainly not least, Yulia Aarons is a presenter on Policy Forum Pod. You heard her on the podcast last last week. Welcome, Yulia. Thanks, Martin. And also, Frohe Weihnachten, as we would say in Germany, since we've covered all the Merry Christmas with everyone else. Does that mean Merry Christmas or if you just said something really rude to me? Mm, you're about to find out. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so let's get into it. I'm about to play you a collection of some of the responses gathered by Sophie as she made her way around the ANU campus to find out about policy past and present. Let's hear the first of what she discovered. I'm here with Hugh White at the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre. What do you think has been the biggest policy failure in recent history? Look, our biggest failure has been to refuse to acknowledge that America and China really are strategic rivals. That is, they're battling it out as to who's going to be the dominant power in East Asia in the 21st century. And that's the biggest thing that's happened to Australia in decades, and we've been pretending it hasn't been happening. Sachini Muller is the editor of Dev Policy Blog. Sachini, what's your 2018 policy highlight? I think probably the recent trend towards focusing on the Pacific a little bit more, um, mostly thanks to the concerns about China, but I think at least we're focusing on our own backyard a bit more now. I'm here with another SDSC Emeritus Professor. Paul Dib, what do you think has been the biggest policy failure in recent history? Groupthink in the intelligence and academic community meant that it was very difficult to argue that there were weaknesses in the Soviet Union. The problem was that, you know, working in the intelligence community in Australia, there was a lot of pressure, groupthink, to obey what the American CIA analysis was. And the Americans got it totally wrong. They couldn't see it coming until almost the end. From the School of Culture, History and Language, Shamim Black, what's been your 2018 policy highlight? Yoga diplomacy is now becoming a thing. The Indian uh, state has realised that in many ways they have these uh, really extraordinary cultural practices that are now um, very popular globally and they want to remind people that these, have, these practices have Indian roots, they want to be able to benefit from them and they want to be able to use it as a positive way to make connections with countries that otherwise there might be somewhat complicated relationships with. John Gould's an SDSC research fellow. John, what's been the biggest policy failure we've faced recently? On the 31st of August, Australia and Indonesia signed a comprehensive strategic partnership. We were strategic partners before, so we've upgraded that, but we've changed nothing. So whilst we've got a fantastic announceable and some exciting words on the uh, on the uh, World Wide Web, we don't know how to actually deliver against it. And as we saw with the Jerusalem um, embassy uh, move question or not, with that small thought bubble, which uh, sort of undermined that whole CSP imperative. Sue Ingram's an expert on Timor-Leste. Sue, what was your policy highlight for 2018? I guess the policy highlight for 2018 for Timor was 
another election, an election that brought into government the three parties which had formed an opposition alliance under the um, the previous parliament's parliamentary tenure and the fact that that parliament only lived for 10 months following the 2017 election. So that is the first time that our panellists have actually heard this and uh, let me paint a, a bit of a picture for you because whilst you were listening to that, our panellists were also hearing it for the first time and they were frantically making notes like they were about to be tested in an exam. <laughs> so I'm wondering who I go to first and I think maybe I'll start with you, Quentin. What were your key takeaways from that? Very diverse views, and perhaps some haven't answered the question that was posed, but let's focus on the positives in the context of what they've come up with. And I think the positive is that uh, there are good things going on in public policy, both from an Australian perspective, and I think also from a global perspective. But I think one of the things that I heard was the issue of groupthink. And we are supposed to be experts. We give our label expert to ourselves or people give it to us. And I think that's an issue that we need to think through here at policyforum.net to what extent that we're in groupthink, to what extent that we're questioning the ideas and thoughts and debates that are going on at the moment. So I, I just sort of highlight that. Let's avoid the groupthink. Let's confront ideas. Let's have a, a vigorous professional and uh, respectful debate. But let's have that sort of debate on a whole range of issues. Jill, I'm looking at you. Do you want to talk to us about yoga diplomacy? I know nothing about yoga diplomacy or yoga. I would be terrible. But I'm going to take Quentin's sort of um, provocation in the spirit, of which, in which I think it was intended. And, you know, let's speak about a lot of this stuff. We hear the same thing. Yeah, we need to decide between China and the US. We're not going to do it right? It's not going to happen. We can't. We can't do it domestically. We can't do it internationally. I'm no foreign policy expert. You know, Morrison has you know, probably tried to straddle both sides of the bench here and say, oh, yes, we're friends with everyone. But what else can he say? You know? Yeah, it would be great and fun and, and invigorating for foreign policy if we came down on one side of that, you know, of that street. But it's not going to happen. Yeah, we've pulled into the Pacific a little bit more, but is, it, is there any substance there really? Um, as far as I can tell, there's not. We do things like we export, um, you know, electoral administration to the region. We go in, we try to help a lot of countries. But there's, as far as I can tell, no uh, overarching sort of strategy behind a lot of these things. Uh, we'll bumble along in foreign policy the way that we have for decades We'll continue to be this sort of middle power. I appreciate that I'm the, you know, I'm the person from another college who's coming up into the college that houses that, you know, strategic and defensive uh, defense strategy center, um, study center, and you know, but it, it from an outsider's perspective, it just looks like business as usual. Sharon, I'm going to throw to you. I mean, guess one thing that really stood out for me and picking up what both Jill and Quentin have talked about there was John Gould's observation about the sort of uh, thought bubble that was floated about moving the embassy uh, to Jerusalem, which caused such consternation in Indonesia. 
Does it seem to you like we're just kind of fumbling in the dark and making some pretty poor decisions faced with, you know, a rapidly changing region, particularly uh, confronting the growing power of China? Um, look, given Quentin's comments, I feel as though I really should begin by challenging everything that everyone has just yeah. said. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I, I would I would pick up on that idea of groupthink, and I am coming to the, the, the embassy um, shift. I'd pick up on that idea of groupthink. And I wonder if the problem is groupthink, and maybe part of it is, I think the problem is there is not enough deep think. You know, there's, mm. there's this kind of almost superficial reaction to things. And that is exemplified by what happened in relationship to where the Australian Embassy in Israel should be. Anyone with the smallest amount of knowledge of the politics in Indonesia, of the nature of the relationship between Australia and Indonesia, should have known what the response outside of the electorate of Wentworth might have been. Um, and of course, I think the response in the electorate of Wentworth wasn't exactly what the government had thought it might be. So I think it's it's that need for much deeper, serious thinking around policy that's not just responsive, that's not bound up in this kind of parochial battle around who's going to win the next marginal seat, but thinking much more strategically, much more broadly. That's certainly the, the, the situation in the relationship with Indonesia. And Jill, I think, makes that point that, that where Australia sits in the rivalry between China and the US is really difficult and it can't be dealt with superficially. It's really deep thinking, reflection and forward planning about where Australia sits and what's in Australia's and the region's and the world's best interests where this kind of rivalry is emerging. And I think it's the same in the Pacific. You know, there's been a shift to the Pacific in terms of Australia's focus in, in um, the aid policy. We can see that as a good thing. But my understanding is that's not new money. That's a reallocation of existing funds from one place to another. And I'm not sure that serves us well because, again, to me, it's just a very reactive kind of policy to the moment rather than that long-term deep thinking. Yulia, you came to us from Bell School, which spends a lot of time thinking about international relations and Australia's place in the region and the world. What's your take on all of this? I think I would agree with the points that Sharon has just made that sometimes, interestingly, also from a bit of an outsider perspective, because I've just moved here two years ago, is that Australian policymakers seem to stumble from one short-term solution to the next. And with the with particular interest in the Pacific that Australia is taking nowadays. And when I first looked at this kind of uptake that Scott Morrison was also um, having for the Pacific and thought, oh, he's putting some more effort into um, the strategy towards the Pacific. And then we had this really interesting discussion with Luke last, uh, last week, and he made a really good point about how this seems to be this there seems to be more interest in the Pacific, but it's also strong self-interest and how we need to continue to also think how the countries that we're working with and that we have an we have an, a strategic interest in can benefit. Matt, no, just I've got an image in my mind and I have to move from deep think to superficial think for just a moment. And I'm thinking about <laughs> yoga diplomacy and I have this image in my head of Scott Morrison in a baseball cap with a can of beer in a lotus position. And I cannot get it out of my head. I'm so glad I don't know what that is. <laughs> Namaste. <laughs> That's the thing though, Sharon, they're not even good at the political strategy. That's the Wentworth, you know, we have to do this because 13% of, of the Wentworth electorate identifies Jewish and 
and Jewish people are all going to vote the same because they love Jerusalem. It, it's just nonsense. It's patronising. It's condescending. It's bad politics and, and bad policy. And undermining the intelligence of the electorate oh. and the desire, I think, of much of the electorate for deeper thinking, for long-term planning, for thinking beyond an electoral cycle. Well, I think it's not just deep thinking, Sharon. And I think it's also the issue of integrity. Yes. So we expect yeah. from our prime minister to operate and make decisions in the national interest, not just in the short-term political interest. And that decision, we don't know the final decision yet. We'll know before Christmas, according to our prime minister. But it's not just the cost of shifting the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. It's a approximate cost of $200 million. That pales in insignificance in terms of the trade costs in the Middle East. So even if you even if you have no view one way or the other about whether this is a good or a bad idea from a, from a, from a diplomatic perspective, it's clearly going to cost Australia multiples of billions of dollars. And it's hard to, to make a case to, to justify that in the context of uh, the, the, the world that we live in. So it's, uh, again, short-term-sided, views, but national interests coming second to the political interest. And it's not just national interest. And I agree with you, Quentin, despite my questioning of everything you say. Like I, <laughs> I, I agree with you that, you know, that there, there should be much more strategic thinking about the national interest. But I would like to think that our political leaders might also be able to think not just of the natural, national interest, but also more broadly about the global interest. And the Middle East, the situation with um, Israel and Palestine and beyond is so complex, is so difficult. So before we bumble into a situation where human lives are lost, we need to be a little more careful about what it is we're doing and why we're doing but it. Bumbling in is what Australia does. Yeah. Why, why would we stop yeah. that now? And it's not just what Australia does, it's also what the whole of Europe did when the refugee crisis happened in 2015. There was no way of dealing with the influx of refugees and there was will to deal with it in certain countries and then we could, just couldn't agree to actually find a way to distribute the refugees in a fair way. Because what is the national interest? Sorry, I got pointy then. What is the national interest? Everyone keeps talking, all the policy people in the room keep talking about the policy, about the national interest. I don't know what the national interest is. And my worry is that that gets thrown around as some better outcome, but we can't quite define what that is. Well, I don't want to give the game away, but I suspect we're going to get to some indecisions and difficulties in terms of making decisions in Europe fairly shortly. But like presents on Christmas Day, we have a lot to get through. So let's unwrap the next package. Oh, no. <laughs> we're all very excited. <laughs> so many puns. Dr. Clark Jones and I'm a uh, criminologist at the uh, Research School of Psychology um, but the area what I want to talk about today is really around um, work around countering violent extremism. I think one of the greatest problems is the decisions are made very much from the top down. You've got a whole lot of people uh, who are from, a, from a, a long way away are making decisions on very complex uh, issues on the ground. A lot of the decisions don't have any contact or any relevance to what's happening on the ground. Um, if, if it's framed around violent extremism, you're unlikely to, uh, you, you're dealing with an issue that's very, very rare. You've got uh, those that make these decisions rarely make contact or engage with communities. And you go out to communities, you know, some of the underlying issues are really around domestic violence, drug and alcohol offending, um, uh, even self-harm, new suicide. Okay, so I'm Dr. Hedda Ransom-Cooper and I'm working in the Research School of Computer Science. 
Um, my research currently is looking at an innovative technology trial on Bruni Island, um, exploring how we can use distributed energy in the form of batteries and solar PV to support the network. I think there's been a lot of political posturing from our leaders around issues to do with migration and population policy in Australia. I think this is really unhelpful and people all across Australian society from from business and the community, urban planners, would like evidence-based policy on this issue and that relates to supporting migration to regional areas where there's a desperate need for workers. My name is Laurie Bamblett. I'm from the School of History and the Centre for Indigenous Australian History and I teach Aboriginal history courses here at ANU. What, in your opinion, has been the biggest policy failure in the past? Well, from my perspective, it's Aboriginal education. And the reason for that is that it's always been designed to turn Aborigines into the sort of people that Europeans want them to be rather than what the sort of people that they want to be, that we want to be ourselves. I'm John Blacksland. I'm the head of the Strategic and Defence Study Centre in the Coral Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs. There's a real highlight for 2018, and that has been Australia's re-engagement with the Pacific. That's been something a long time in the making, and it's great to see it come to fruition, but it's a start, not an end point. We have a lot more to do with the Pacific, but we're heading in the right direction. Yeah, so lots to respond to there. Uh, Countering violent extremism, uh, migration and population policy, uh, Aboriginal education and Pacific policy. Perhaps, Jill, you want to start us off this time? I I know that in the last segment I said that it's good that we're moving to the Pacific, but I don't know why I said that. This is... (laughs) This You're is, taking their present back, Jill. <laughs> this is the group think that I think Quint- Quentin spoke about and that I've already fallen into. Why Why is it good that we're moving to the Pacific? I'm asking a room full of non-IR people or, you know, strategic sort of studies people. I, I want to question it. Why? I'm looking at faces who are like, yeah, no, that's a great question, Jill. <laughs> <laughs> None of us have a response. But, but is it only – but, but I assume it's only with regard to China, right? I, I'm, you know, I'm kind of a cynic in a lot of ways. I like to push back a little bit and, you know. Oh, look, I think it's a good question. So obviously on the, on the, on the positive side, it is our neighbourhood. They're our closest neighbours, so it makes sense to to, to look after oh. our neighbours. On the on the other side, is uh, the world is a, is in a bit of a mess, <laughs> to say the least. So we can't just think about our neighbourhood. We have to think a, a bigger picture, Indo Pacific, and there's a whole set of issues in Africa, etc. Mm-hmm. So 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 getting that balance right is hard to do, and I, I'm not suggesting that that uh, it's easy, uh, but that's been the the struggle and challenge that DFAT has to had to face, uh, and the, in the context of the Pacific, if it's just about providing a counter to China, then that's the wrong motivation and it will lead to the wrong set of outcomes. Mm. Because if it's just simply trying to match China in terms of aid, we're not going to be able to compete effectively. And if it's simply about building a naval base in a particular country that's next to us, uh, we're not going to be able to compete with China with that because they're going to build another naval base in another place. So I think we have to think about what are we trying to do in the Pacific? Are we trying to help them achieve whatever capacity and capabilities and potential they want to achieve? And how can we 
do that and we have to think beyond aid, the issue of employment within Australia. There's a whole set of issues. Mm. Work with them as partners. Don't work with them as a top-down type of thinking, as was mentioned by one of our, 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 our interviewees. I think that's the approach. Treat them as partners. Treat them with respect. Work with them in a, what, what they want to achieve and do it in a way that's long-term, 10, 20, 30 years. Then we'll have friends. We'll have good partners. And whatever China does, that's not a problem for me, from my perspective. And if China wants to help uh, countries in the Pacific, good on them. Uh, but let's make it sure that what we do is we deliver for, for the Pacific and make uh, sure that our friends know that we're delivering for them. As you're talking, Quentin, I'm thinking way back to my undergraduate degree in 1385. But <laughs> in, the, in the 1980s at the University of Tasmania, Richard Hur used to talk about the concept of strategic denial in the Pacific and the way in which Australia and the United States acted in the Pacific during the Cold War to keep the Soviet Union out in terms of regional influence. And that led to a certain type of engagement and investment, but it didn't lead to the kind of ongoing long-term connections that you're talking about. And it's almost as though we're seeing that repeat again as, you know, we need to keep China out so we move in for these reasons. But I think about at least what my students from the Pacific talk about in terms of priorities. And I think about the political discourse in the Pacific and what many Pacific leaders and people might like to see is Australia thinking really seriously about climate change. Yeah, and right. in terms of building a partnership mm -hmm. and responding, there's something we could do usefully, but we, we, we're we not connecting those dots. Right. We're just using, it just feels like we're using the Pacific as this proxy kind of battle with China. And I don't know if that's a bit of a sop to the US, you know, and, and full disclosure, my you know, knowledge of this extends to visiting some mates in Suva a few years ago. And you see the Ausaid signs, or was Ausaid then, up next to the Chinese government signs. And it's just they're getting progressively bigger. We've funded this. Well, we've funded this. And I mean, that's, it seems like a kind of pure old way to make international policy and to deliver aid. All right, well, before we move on to the next section, you know that awkward moment on Christmas Day where someone opens a, a present in front of you? Well, I kind of want to have a similar experience here <laughs> because we've heard from the people that Sophie has been out interviewing about the best and worst of 2018, and we're going to hear a little about some of the hopes for 2019. But I also want to hear those perspectives from the people around the table. So perhaps if I get Sharon to open her Christmas present first and tell us uh, in very briefly best and worst policy decisions of the year. The worst policy for me is not a policy that was actually adopted this year, but it's been an ongoing policy and that is around the detention of children and their families and people in desperate need um, on Nauru, but, but also on Manus. And there is so much around that that worries me. One of the things that worries me is the whole discourse around that that makes Nauru sound like the entire country is a prison. Mm. And I wonder how people who live on Nauru and love their place feel about that whole discourse. But that policy of detaining sick, desperate children and their families is disgusting. And we have managed to catch ourselves in a political rhetoric, a, a political debate that hasn't allowed us to step out of that. And I think it's just, it's, it's appalling the way that policy and the discourse around it has spiralled while children suffer in, in circumstances that I think history will condemn as torture, as concentration camps. 
So to me, that's the worst policy. Maybe that would lead on to a piece of optimism and what might be a best policy is we've seen another independent join the crossbenchers mm. and Karen Phelps. Karen Phelps put forward a bill that might actually give us a pathway out of that mire. So maybe maybe that might become the best policy. Oh, that was a, that was a good Christmas present to unwrap. And so perhaps we'll get, we'll ask one more person. Maybe Yulia, you want to have a crack at it? What's what what are you going to unwrap for us? I think uh, I'm going to take a bit of Sharon's Christmas present here. <laughs> um, unfortunately, a very sad issue here in Australia. But yeah, from my European perspective also in Europe. And uh, Sharon was talking about how it's more of an ongoing thing and less of a 2018 thing. And then I think that's a set, that accounts for the refugee issue in Europe as well. It's been ongoing for such a long time and it's more the lack of a policy on how to deal with it, which makes the outlook on future, possible future refugee crisis so depressing. If we look at how many people have died in the Mediterranean, in the past three years, and that should just be a very careful reminder that at some point Europe has to come up with a way to deal with this because we can't have common borders and no inside borders within Europe without having a way to deal with people who are coming into our country, seeking, into the countries in Europe seeking refuge. Yeah, very good points. Well made. Okay, so time is pressing against us, so let's crack on and hear the third of our VoxPop packages. Hello, uh, I'm Margaret Thornton. I'm a professor of law at the ANU College of Law. So discrimination law is certainly one of my um, areas. And I suppose one of the policy failures was the attempt then to consolidate the federal laws of discrimination so that there are separate acts in terms of age, race, uh, disability and sex and uh, they failed under the Gillard government. However, there was an amendment to the Sex Discrimination Act which then proscribed discrimination in terms of intersex relations, same-sex marriage and, and so on. Uh, but that's become very contentious. So my name is uh, Timothy Graham. I am a postdoctoral fellow in the Research School of Computer Science and also in the School of Sociology. One of the pressing issues is the role of Facebook and social media platforms. And so a pressing concern, I, I suppose, is how do we think about regulating these or how can we initiate a discussion about regulating these platforms? So there's these kind of real tensions around how do we enable these platforms to flourish because clearly they have a, you know, a positive role but at the same time if they're influencing the outcome of elections for example then we really have to do something about it. My name is Dr Alistair Wedderburn and my work focuses primarily on the global politics of visual and popular culture. What in your opinion has been the biggest policy failure in recent years? As a British person it really can only be Brexit. Over the last year I think one thing that's become very clear is the extent to which Brexit has the capacity to really pull apart every sort of political party within um, the United Kingdom, not only on the, on the question of Northern Ireland, um, also the Labour Party is, is just as divided as the Conservative Party. And because of that reason, it's, it's very difficult to see a way forward or a clear way forward that uh, is likely to... to enable people to come together. Ben Phillips, I'm an Associate Professor at the Centre for Social Research and Methods here at the Australian National University. 
So my main research area is Australia's uh, tax and welfare system and I'm also looking into uh, various housing issues as well. What, in your opinion, has been the worst policy? I think we've reduced the tax rates for many Australians too much over the past 10, 20 or so years. That's particularly looking at older Australians, so they're very lightly taxed for things like superannuation, their incomes and also their housing as well is too lightly taxed for older Australians. So a diversity of views there, and I'm going to throw to the panel in a second. But first of all, let me just second uh, Alistair. As a British person, I am, of course, contractually obliged to agree that Brexit is a, a policy disaster of uh, 2018. It is, in the words of the great Malcolm Tucker, an omni-shambles. <laughs> um, so who wants to have a crack at this first? Sharon, perhaps maybe you'd like to give us some thoughts. Well, I felt like I should jump in, Martin, and take the compare role and say, Martin, what do you think about Brexit? But um, <laughs> I knew you would take the opportunity. It is indeed an omni-shambles. Um, in some ways, it goes back to the point that we were making before. If we track back to where all of this came from, it feels like it was a populist moment in time where a prime minister thought there was an easy fix solution to a very complex issue mm. without thinking forward about the tens of thousands of people, pieces of legislation that would have to be amended, what it meant long term for for. for Britain for its economic, for its social future, what it meant for the relationship with Northern Ireland. I mean, you know, it's just, it wouldn't have taken, I wouldn't have thought more than a minute's contemplation to know that holding a referendum around this was a really stupid idea. So I think it goes back to that groupthink, lack of deep think issue that we were talking about before. Um, I also wanted to comment, and I don't want to move away too far from Brexit, Martin, because I know this is close to your heart, and I think our Christmas present to you should be to discuss Brexit a bit more. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> but I also just wanted to pick up on Margaret Thornton's point about discrimination and just make one comment at Christmas. Why are we still having a discussion in this country about whether or not sh schools should be allowed to discriminate against children who are gay or have a different sexual orientation or gender identity? You know, if, if we're thinking about discrimination and how we move beyond discriminatory practice, why are we even having this discussion? There's a common thread here, though, and it ties to Brexit as well. And it's government's inability or eh, maybe not inability, but lack of willingness to stand up and defend some of these things, right? Governments across the world are just timid, really, really timid. Why not? Why didn't David Cameron, who, you know, is a Remainer, why didn't he stand by his convictions and argue the case for remaining in Brexit? Right? Why didn't uh, even if even after they called the referendum, why didn't a bunch of these very prominent conservative and Labor politicians in the UK stand up and actually kind of you know nail your colours to the mast? But no one's uh, no one's willing to do that at the moment. We keep sort of outsourcing decision making to either the to either citizens or to consultants or to someone, and it and it defers these tough decisions. I don't think that governments in established democracies give voters enough credit, that we're not idiots. Mm. We're pretty smart. On a lot of these issues, increasingly, we're more progressive. We're, we're more nuanced. We're uh, more willing to tackle reform than our legislators. You know, they've only got themselves to blame. 
But you, you, you know, Jill, what I, what I find worrying as you're talking is I think of the leaders globally who seem to be prepared to take a strong position. It may change, but a strong position and nail their colours to the mast. And I think of Vladimir Putin and I think of Donald Trump. So, you know, to have different voices being able, be standing up by a different set of values, I think is so important because those who are sort of standing up and saying, this is the way it is, are not necessarily those voices that we would like to trust the future with. Oh, absolutely. So I would um, discount Putin from that because, you know, I think this is sort of a, a parliamentary democracy thing first and foremost. <laughs> yes, fair enough. But we can't, we can't just pretend that the US doesn't exist. Look, in the spirit of provocation again, Trump could be worse. He could have done a lot worse than he's done. That's probably true. Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> and and he could have been better. Oh, look. So we've, we, we finally got on to Trump. <laughs> Sorry. Blame that was Sharon. my fault. Yeah. <laughs> that was my fault. Quentin, let me throw a question at you. Uh, something picking up basically what Jill was talking about, that our politicians lack bravery and our politics, politicians lack conviction to actually sell a message to the public. What are your thoughts? I don't necessarily agree with Jill on that. Uh, in the you con- like our politicians, Quentin. <laughs> no, it, I, <laughs> I think I think politicians uh, are pretty good at selling, uh, but they're selling uh, products and services that we probably don't want. So we've got <laughs> Theresa May, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom at the moment, trying to sell a pretty poor deal, uh, but she's selling it by saying, "Well, if you don't go for this." poor deal, you're going to get an even worse deal as a no deal. So, I mean, that's uh, that's uh, that's selling something for Christmas that uh, you probably you don't want to buy. But, <laughs> and I can certainly see uh, here in Australia politicians selling various policies that I don't make much sense to me at all from a, from a national interest perspective. But, but the issue to me is this again, I keep on coming back to it. It's not the the smarts of a politician. I mean, you can always say, well, individual X could be smarter, but yeah. it's really the integrity issue. I come back to this integrity issue. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the intelligence of David Cameron, as far as I'm concerned. It's the integrity issue is why he went down that pathway. And then, of course, Jill makes the point that, you know, listen to the people. And, and of course, but the people in the United Kingdom did make a call. 52% approximately voted in favor of Brexit. But the issue is, is to when you make a big decision, you know, are you make are you fully informed? Uh, and that decision was a, a step in a direction. The actual final decision, which is now apparently going to happen by default, <laughs> is a no Brexit deal with the EU. Uh, we'll see in the next few days. Uh, which, uh, if anyone knew at the time in 2016 when they voted. I don't believe the majority of the people in the United Kingdom would have voted for that. And then there's a whole been set of issues about misinformation, the finance from uh, so, uh, Russia. I mean, there's a whole set of issues around that, lies that were told. And that's an integrity issue again. Mm. You know, it, mm. politicians lying to people to get a particular interest, which is to, you know, become a prime minister. <laughs> you know, I mean, all those sorts of things are a concern to me. And, and I think the Brexit issue is much, much bigger than the UK. There's a whole set of issues around Brexit. So it's the issue of anti-globalization, yep. you know, movement away from countries coming together. There's a populist issue, which is populism, and there's nothing wrong with being 
populist in the sense that, that people's concerns should be dealt with. But populism that's contrary and against the particular groups is, I think, a negative. And then you've got a whole set of issues. United Kingdom has the reputation, I think deservedly so, as, as having one of the most competent public services in the world, you know, civil service. Yet, you know, is a country about to exit in a disaster scenario. So you've got all of those things, evidence-based policy, integrity. I mean, it all comes together in this Brexit soup. And so it's 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 what not to do. Poor Martin. <laughs> just the, the idea of consuming some Brexit soup. And it's a warning to all of us in the context of, you know, what we need to be careful about when we talk about these issues of the day and be careful about what we want in our democracy and how we have citizens engaging in decision-making avoiding top-down decision. I mean, all those sorts of things. I mean, it's bigger than this podcast, but there's a set of issues there around Brexit that really, really worry me. I'm okay with top-down decision-making. I think what Brexit shows us is that, and, you know, I stand very firmly by my claim that I think citizens are very smart and they make rational decisions, but we're not policy experts. And that's the Brexit thing, right? When you defer, when you outsource that decision-making and then the accountability for the decision-making you get Brexit, right? We have a very good civil service in the UK and here. We have representative democracy. We appoint people. We elect people to go and sit in the legislature and then we hold them accountable. They come to the election with a suite of policies that is usually ideologically coherent, not so much at the moment, but we know we know what we're expecting, right? There's some kind of mandate. There's some kind of promise and expectation. Things like Brexit, things like same-sex marriage, uh, postal survey, uh, things like, um, you know, interference in elections, all these things just throw that out the window. You know, we we have this traditional line of accountability. It's getting lost. But to me, it's not an either-or between, you know, top-down decision-making or we just throw it open to populism. There has to be a role for leadership that is based on integrity, but that also recognises the complexity of some of these decisions. And Jill, I think this is a really good point. How can we expect the, the general population, whoever they may be, to make a decision like Brexit, as you say, Quentin, when this is so complex? Mm. And Jill, you raise the same-sex marriage survey again. I mean, to me, this is an example of somewhere where leadership simply should have been taken. But we had a government that wasn't prepared to make that call in case it was unpopular. But throwing that out to popular debate was, was rather cruel, yep. <laughs> no, whereas leadership was required. Yep. We think about the things that really matter to people's day-to-day -day lives. Maybe we should have a postal vote on the nature of superannuation. It affects I don't more know people. about superannuation. So, I don't want to vote on that. Exactly, which is why we shouldn't do it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, right. you know, if we're saying we throw one issue out but we another's too complex, I think we, we just need to think much more about how we balance responsiveness to democracy with genuine leadership that we expect our leaders to demonstrate. Bang on. Also, yeah. I think people were actually surprised by the result of the Brexit vote. So there was this this so this complete element of surprise when Cam the Cameron government popped that question to the population and ever everyone in Europe was watching this and we all felt fairly sure that no, this is not going to happen. And I feel like there was this kind of security on the Remain side in Britain, that they weren't campaigning, campaigning the same way the Leave side was doing it because they were expecting that Britain would vote to stay in the European Union. And then suddenly, after this 
result came out, people were surprised and thought, oh, the border with Ireland. And <laughs> oh, how are we going to agree on a deal with the European Union if the European Union has so much to lose? If the EU gives the UK an easy way out, there might be more countries following. And that was just not thought about at all. There's a really interesting sort of class thing here too, right? And generational. That one of my best mates called me after the result was released and she said, what the hell just happened? You're a political scientist. And I said, mate, call your dad, who was a former Welsh coal miner, right? Call your dad. Yeah, I bet he voted to leave. And then about half an hour later, I just get this text message. This is bugger. Is she... We just – there's just this obliviousness that other people could think differently, did even you, when it's her own dad and they're very close. Did she use the word hell? Because there were, there were different words, I've got to say, when I, when I saw that result. We don't swear. Through. My friends and I are perfectly uh, angelic and there's so, no swearing. So, Yulia, uh, what is the German for omni-shambles? <laughs> We're all listening with bated breath to this Christmas present. It's got to be a German word. I have no, I don't, I haven't even heard this English expression before. So you get the chance to teach me what that actually means. It just doesn't mean bad things all around. It means it's just it, everything. It means things f- on multi layers. Excuse my language. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know what the French would say and ca- catastrophe. <laughs> that might be something very unique to English. Mm, complete catastrophe, which is a complete catastrophe. And I think it just sounds very harsh, as German tends to sound like. Complete <laughs> catastrophe. Um, ah, now I remember. Schlamasse. I'm not even going to attempt to repeat that, but I do like the, the tone of that word. So let's, let's go with that. Well, that's all we have time for in part one. So many thanks to everyone who answered our questions and uh, a really good discussion around the table. The Christmas party is over for Sharon Bessel and for Julia Ahrens. They are taking their presents and they are returning back to their homes. Uh, Merry Christmas and thanks to you, Sharon. Well, Policy Forum is, or or, or the Policy Pod is just the gift that keeps on giving, Martin. All year has been fabulous. (laughs) It it really is such a privilege to be part of this. So thank you for a great year and Merry Christmas to everyone out there. See you in 2019. Indeed. And uh, a what's German for Merry Christmas again? Frohe Weihnachten and ein guten Rutsch, which means have a safe slide into the new year. Oh, Nice. Well, I hope you have a safe slide into the new year. Thanks for being here, Julia. Thank you. Okay, so please stick around because in part two, Nikki Lovegrove. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We'll be taking the reins in the hot seat here, and uh, we'll be hearing all about what better policy might look like in the future. Stay with us. Welcome back. This is Nikki Lovegrove. As mentioned, Martin has wandered away from the policy Christmas party. But like a drunken uncle appearing without warning, there's a distinct chance he could make another grab for the microphone down the track. So just be prepared for that. 
I'm here with a slightly different lineup of previous hosts of Policy Forum Pod. As Martin mentioned, Sharon Bessel and Yulia Arens have also left, but we still have with us Quentin Grafton and Jill Shepard. Hi, Quentin. Hi, Jill. Good to be back. I just never left. <laughs> <laughs> I've also got with me Sue Regan, who is a PhD scholar here at Crawford School and Program Director at the Institute of Public Administration Australia. Welcome, Sue. Hi, Nikki. And Maya Bandari, who is a presenter on Policy Forum Pod and a student here at ANU. Welcome, Maya. Hi, Nikki. Well, let's get right back into it. As mentioned earlier, our roving reporter, Sophie Riedel, asked ANU researchers for their thoughts on policies past, present and future. Let's hear what they had to say about what policies could make the world better in 2019. Hi, I'm Daniel May from the ANU School of History. My research is into the politics of Indigenous burning in Australia and the Western United States, both historical and contemporary. I think in the US there's an argument for more use of fuel management. So the US spends a, a tremendous amount of money, California, $2 billion a year alone on fighting fires instead of managing fires and actually doing things before the fire season comes up. There's a lot to be done there. Part of the way that that could be done is by re-emphasis on tribal burning, Native American burning. That would fulfill a whole bunch of objectives. It would help reduce the fuel and it might give the, the tribes a bit more of a cultural revitalization. Uh, we can see that starting to happen in Australia with the cultural burning movement in southern Australia and particularly in Victoria. And Dr. Hedda Ranson-Cooper from the College of Engineering and Computer Science. What policy would you like to see implemented in 2019? I think, again, this is probably a bit of a no-brainer for me. That would have to be some progressive policy on energy that relates very strongly to, to climate change, so providing policy certainty for the industry. We've just seen so much investment from stakeholders across so many different areas in different types of policy options on the table, like the National Energy Guarantee, and it's just there's so much fatigue, I think, in the kind of energy community sector space that we just cannot get some certainty around what is such a fundamental, important issue. So... We know what we want. We want energy that is affordable, that is clean and green, and we have the technology and the capacity to do that, but we need the right sort of policy framework in place. So my name is Sachini Muller. I'm a research officer at the Development Policy Centre, which is part of the Crawford School. I do a little bit of Australian aid and a little bit of Pacific labour migration. I think the biggest one is some sort of commitment to a percentage of um, GNI going towards aid. Uh, I think that's really important, something we've committed to in the past and sort of failed on. I'm here with Professor John Blacksland from the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre. John, what policy would you like to see implemented in 2019? In 2019, I would like to see Australia play a leading role in developing a collective response to the Rohingya challenge. There's a crying need for Australia alongside our neighbours, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand and Bangladesh, Japan, India and others to collaborate, to creatively come up with a regional solution to the Rohingya challenge that sees the Rohingyas resettled, that sees Myanmar pressured into making concessions and at the same time recognise the needs of Myanmar to have security and some kind of assurance. So thank you, Sophie, for that. In our last section, we definitely got more than enough policy pessimism to put a bit of a downer on this Christmas party, but I want to hear from the panel what you just thought of that. What do you think about the sorts of policies that we need for the future based on the responses we just heard? Maybe I'll start with you, Quentin. Look, I, I liked uh, all of what was said. It's really about people and it's a focus on getting outcomes for people in terms of, you know, whether it's Indigenous communities or whether it's uh, people who've been dispossessed of their land. 
in the context of the Rohingya or, or, or people in terms of making sure they have affordable and clean energy. So all those sorts of issues, I think, are, are absolutely important as well as aid. So uh, that's it. It's about people putting people first, I think. I was extremely optimistic in the last uh, episode, Nikki. I resent that you just said <laughs> I was cynical. Um, I don't know where I got that idea I, from. Sorry, Jill. I defended Donald Trump in the last hour. And this idea of, of cultural fuel management is uh really interesting. And I believe that Donald Trump made a similar point a couple of weeks ago about raking the forests. So we've got great hope for the future because <laughs> the US president knows about absolutely raking forests. Absolutely no. no <laughs> I'm sure that Trump's suggestion was absolutely absurd because that's um, I'm willing to use that shortcut uh, that anything he suggests is probably absurd. Um, but what an interesting idea to, to use Indigenous uh, cultural practices to work on fire management. That's brilliant. Yeah, I agree with Jill. I reckon that you about know, Trump? <laughs> <laughs> Don't know if I can agree with Trump, you know. <laughs> but I think um, consulting with our Indigenous communities, it's some, a practice that they've been doing for centuries and to really help with, you know, Queensland's on fire at the moment, isn't it? So I think, yeah, consulting with Indigenous communities will be really important moving forward. Sue, anything that struck you then? Well, I was really struck by John Blackland's point about uh, Australia needing to step up and take a leading role in the Rohingya uh, tragedy, um, you know, and really to emphasise, I think, you know, as John did, that there's real potential there to collaborate across our region on that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic, I think, on, on that front, but it does require Australia, I think, to take the lead. Yeah, and I wanted to touch on what Quinn was saying about how people are quite centric to a lot of these policy suggestions. And the other area that I thought was kind of consistent across these recommendations was about planning for the future. So he, so it was Daniel May mentioned that when it comes to preparing for fires in the United States, a huge amount of money goes into clearing the fuel away even before there's a risk of fire. And we also heard Hedo Ransom Cooper talk about climate change. If that's not a prevention problem, I don't know what is. So I wonder what sort of um, other prevention policies do you think we might need to see going into 2019? Maybe start with you, Quentin. I think that's spot on, actually, Nick, in the context of there's huge amounts of risk that we face in Australia and globally, and you mentioned climate change, but there's, it goes well beyond the, the biophysical issues. So I think that sort of planning about uh, what those risks are, thinking about them actually having risk registers, thinking how planning what we need to do in Australia, I think that's a key. So in other words, actually get the process right in terms of thinking about risk and making those right calls in terms of what we do. And then you can consider a whole range of different risks. And then we can actually hopefully get better decisions. So that that would be sort of my call for 2019. Oh, and I'd like to... Uh, kind of uh, suggest a slightly different angle on that, which is thinking about uh, social policy and social risks and how, you know, I think in that context, prevention is about, you know, early intervention and early on in people's lives and thinking about how we prevent future disadvantage and future inequality. So there's a, yeah, there's an interesting angle there, I think, about planning over the long term for social policy and social investment. Well, I might take the opportunity now to ask you, in the previous episode of the pod, previous half of this podcast, sorry, we heard what were the worst and best policies of 2018. And it was a bit of a Christmas present bonanza as we went around the table. What one policy would you like to see in 2019, Sue? Well, at a, a, a domestic level, I'd like to see the level of New Start increased, um, which is the, you know, the payment that goes to people who are unemployed here in Australia. I think it's... Uh, you know, it becomes increasingly obvious that 
Uh, by international standards, it's very low, and there's so much evidence now that it is detrimental in you know both in terms of people's uh, well-being, but also in you know giving them opportunities to get back into work. So, yeah, that would be a good one. We'll take some uh, bold, I think, political uh, bravery, um, but it does over time become. I think there's a the case is really building for that to happen. And how about you, Maya? One policy for 2019? I reckon for 2019, we need to rethink a lot of our education policies. I reckon that we need to focus more on languages in particular. Like I've just finished a Bachelor of Languages and I think that waiting until high school or into into university is just way too late. And we can really think about learning languages from a very young age, whether it's, you know, bit of a cultural resurgence and thinking about Indigenous languages or even thinking about our close neighbours and learning Indonesian or Mandarin. And I think that'll really help Australia in the future. Well, Quentin and Jill, I'll come to you later on to receive your policy Christmas presents. But for now, let's keep this show moving. I've got another clip to play you all about what will make 2019 a better policy environment. Hi, I'm Dr. Dominique Dallapoza. I work at the Law School at the ANU College of Law and my field of research is Australia's domestic national security law and particularly the way in which the Commonwealth Parliament has constructed those laws since 9-11. What I would really like to see in 2019 is that we focus our attention as a democratic policy on how we make the legislation that we are going to need in the future, that we um, try and ensure that our the democratic systems that we've got in place, so our parliamentary systems, our systems of oversight, both the judicial oversight where it applies and independent executive oversight, that they are robust, that they are properly funded so that we can ensure that our national security legal architecture is functioning as appropriately and as effectively as it can. I'm here with Ben Phillips from the Centre of Social Research and Methods. What policy would you like to see in 2019? I strongly think the good social policy is good economic policy. And I think in Australia, our welfare system is not perfect. It's not too bad either. But one area that definitely needs some work is the New Start payment. That's the payment for most unemployed Australians. It's currently around $550 per fortnight. And that's uh, too little to live on and probably also too little from to form a good basis for, for getting forward in life and, and getting on with your life and finding a job. I'm here with Dr Alistair Wedderburn from the Department of International Relations. Alistair, what policy would you like to see implemented in 2019? I think, again, going back to Brexit, you know, no policy in relation to Brexit is going to be perfect at this stage. Uh, I can see the problems with a second referendum on Britain's membership of the European Union, but I do think, given the way in which the question was asked in 2016, that a referendum or at least some kind of um, question needs to be posed to the British people about, at the very least, the terms of the deal, uh, which is currently being thrashed out by the United Kingdom and the European Union. And um, I don't see any way to proceed, really, with Brexit or with any alternative without that. And now for Laurie Bamblett from the ANU School of History. What policy would you like to see in 2019? Oh, that one's easy, cultural resurgence. So a genuine two-way education that's based on cultural resurgence where schools that have done a lot of the damage to sort of deculture Aboriginal people can now have a role where they help to sort of reculture.
Well, so it looks like at least one of our ANU academics agrees with you on raising Newstart. But I actually want to ask you about Brexit. Um, so previously, we heard that if you're anywhere, if you're from anywhere in the United Kingdom, you're contractually obligated to have some <laughs> views on this. You just heard Alistair Wedderburn on what he thought needs to happen in terms of Brexit. What about you? What is the best that we could hope for in terms of Brexit in 2019? Oh well, as you know, as a dual national, um, uh, originally born in the UK, and I've, I've actually just renewed my uh, f- uh, form, which will allow me to vote in the in the UK. Um, I mean, I agree with Alistair that um, some sort of uh, referendum on the terms of the deal is a really important part of taking Brexit forward. I think uh, most people, whether they voted for or against Brexit, feel that the first referendum was uh, poorly framed and ill-informed, um, you know, and I think we need for democratic reasons to give people uh, a say in what the future might look like in the UK. Um, I mean, building on that, I think there needs to be uh, some sort of, uh, you know, perhaps even explicit contract between the British government and the UK people on what uh, what's going to happen going forward. Um, uh, you know, there's been a lot of re- research going into uh, that now within Whitehall. Um, but I think that really needs to be part of a conversation uh, and, uh, yeah, some sort of um, contract between the, the government and the British people. Jill, what do you reckon? I like Sue very much and I feel awful about disagreeing with her on this. Uh, not that I think Brexit as a stance is a bit of a mess, but... Um, I think the problem that a second referendum would have, and and this this reflects sort of you know my feelings say on a referendum a, a, a Republican referendum in Australia, is that our preferences aren't, and I'm going to slip into political science jargon here. They're not unidimensional, so it's not necessarily that I would prefer a very very hard Brexit, and then my next option would be my next preference would be a moderate Brexit, and then my last preference would be no Brexit at all. So. For instance, my position on the on the Republic in Australia is that I would prefer a minimal, minimalist republic. If we couldn't have that, then I'd prefer to stay a constitutional monarchy. And then my very last preference would be a directly elected president, for instance. And so if we go to a referendum on the terms of a Brexit uh, deal, we might find that people's preferences are a bit all over the shop, that they actually, A, can't articulate exactly what they want, B, don't necessarily have the policy expertise to be able to make a very good and informed uh, decision, and and that C, we might get a, a perverse outcome. So you might get an outcome that actually people don't prefer overall, but because our preferences are multidimensional – you can, and this is sort of like a classic law of political science, you can get an outcome that no one's happy with, which in terms of Brexit at the moment mightn't be any worse than what's going to happen anyway. But, you know, there's all these traps. Look, I'm just glad I'm not British. Well, it looks like that's what's happening because the decision will be made in Parliament this week from the decision that was made in the the last 24 hours that the uh, British government was found in contempt of parliament. Mm. That vote, uh, 311, I believe, uh, uh, in favour that the government was in contempt indicates to me that the deal on the table that Theresa May negotiated will not pass the British parliament. If it doesn't pass, then there is, in fact, no deal and there's not enough time for a referendum between now and 29th of March. So they've already signed the articles of uh, departure from the EU. So it looks like it is, in fact, a hard exit, uh, no deal, 
and that will happen on the midnight on the 29th of March. So I think it's actually pretty much <laughs> the, the 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 chime is 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 chiming for for the the last uh, the last minute of the of the last uh, 24 hours. So I don't think we're in that ball game anymore. And uh, UK going back into the EU, if there were to be a second referendum, will go into the EU in very, very different terms than, than it had previously. So then <laughs> we're, in a, we're in a totally different world. So yeah, don't want to sound doom and gloom before <laughs> Christmas. This, but this was supposed to be the part of the point where we put some optimism to the table. It's the yes. Australians in the room sort of saying, suck it, Brits. <laughs> I actually don't want to spend the whole time talking about Brexit, so I might move on. There was a comment in there by Dominique Dallapoza about ensuring that our democratic systems of oversight are robust enough when we're looking at national security legislation. Um, and I'm interested to hear from you on this, Quentin. About, you, t- you spoke earlier about the need for, I suppose, integrity from our politicians. Are there any other things that you think our democratic systems need in order to be a good place for positive policy in 2019? Absolutely. I think transparency is one of those key things. So uh, transparency and, of course, the opposite tied to that is accountability. We don't have enough of it in Australia. And one of the things that uh, I was going to respond to in terms of what we'd won in 2019, I'll give you another policy f- instead. But one of the things I was going to mention was a federal ICAC, you know, an independent uh, anti-corruption type commission, I think is absolutely required at the federal level. Uh, it means that we would get some, 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 some transparency and some accountability in terms of actions. And of course, public servants would have to be held accountable, as indeed politicians would be as well. So I think that's a step in the right direction. I think I'd also highlight the Royal Commissions that are underway, the Royal Commission on Banking and Finance that every Australian knows about. But there's another Royal Commission underway in South Australia on water on the Murray-Darling Basin. And that's also finding some pretty shocking pieces of uh, information. So so I, I just want to highlight that transparency, that accountability that Royal Commissions can provide, I think is a very good thing for democracy. And I think that we need to build it into the systems that we have in play. I think the sorts of things that we have in terms of our federal parliament that worked in the past, uh, I think are working less well now in terms of uh, Senate estimates. That's where public servants go and get asked questions by senators. I mean, a lot of these questions now seem to be uh, on notice. Uh, they can get away with not answering the questions. It just seems remarkable in our democracy that that can happen. So I think we got to work out and better ways and more accountable ways of, of, of shining a light on what's actually going on in terms of uh, decision making. I think that's in everyone's interest, the long-term interest of Australia and Australians and ultimately politicians, even though they might not like it at the moment, because they themselves will, uh, the, the good the good will, will, will rise to the top, so to speak, rather than the, the people who can manipulate systems rising to the top. I think well, something else that Dominique said was about, you know, how we make legislation legislation and making sure it's suitable for the future. I think especially in the national security context, we're very caught up in the current threat environment and all the legislation that we're making is for today's problems. And we're not really thinking enough about how the legislation that we make now, how that will change in a different threat context. And I think that's something that Dominique highlighted and something that we really need to think about. Mm. Her research on this is really important. There's no one else really doing this kind of stuff in Australia. Um, Dominique is, yeah, brilliant and really, uh, I think, onto something here because this is such a huge issue. Um, luckily, my luckily for you all and for the country, my uh, suggest a policy for 2019 will fix all of these. Am I allowed to say it yet? Yeah? Go ahead. <laughs> okay. So what I would do 
Sorry, like, get yourselves comfortable. What I would do is, and I'm the world's biggest fan of compulsory voting, so don't get me wrong, and I think I've actually foreshadowed this on an earlier pod. Um, I would make voting at next year's election uh, voluntary, right, just once, and see what happens. Because theoretically, and I think intuitively, the party should have to get off their asses and actually speak to us about issues that we care about. Talk about things like integrity and trust, because trust in Australian uh, parliament, in Australian politicians and Australian parties has never been lower. It's catastrophically low, like to the point where, you know, we worry about particularly younger Australians and particularly actually those in their 30s thinking democracy maybe isn't the best game, you know, isn't the only game in town. No, I don't think Australian democracy is necessarily under threat. But if we had the parties have to actually come to us, beg us and plead with us to get out to vote, I think we would see a lot of these things actually on the national agenda. We wouldn't be talking about law and order. We wouldn't be talking about access to encrypted communications, which no anti-terrorism or, uh, you know, other sort of um, police institution thinks is a very good idea, but except for the institutions that would you know, almost inevitably end up abusing that. Uh, We wouldn't be talking about uh, the rights of private schools to um, not enrol gay and lesbian students. We would be talking about things that are central to people. We would be talking about um, uh, privacy protections. We would be talking about climate change and water policy and New Start. And we'll be talking about these things, just one election, but we don't. The parties are going to remain reticent to talk about anything that might inflame the population. So we're going to keep vilifying migrants. We're going to keep talking about this existential threat of terrorism, which doesn't really, you know, affect any of us. Uh, We're going to have the most dispiriting, uh, uninspiring, confidence-sapping election in living living memory. Um, And, you know, that's that's Christmas cheer. (laughs) (laughs) So... The United States has voluntary voting. Do you think that they are talking about all the most important things? (laughs) We're only going to do it once, (laughs) Nikki, and then we're going to go back. I just want to see how the parties respond. Our parties are stagnant. They are ideologically incoherent. They... um, they, they spend more time fighting in these internal coalitions, you know, to form internal coalitions that are ideologically disparate. They don't make any sense. They all hate each other. Uh, membership is uh, abysmal. It's basically negligible, the, the percentage of the population that actually belongs to political parties. We're not going to see any change to the kinds of people who get pre-selected. We're not going to see any kind of internal robust policy debates while we keep pre-selecting the same people. We need to shake something up. Jill, I, I know uh, in the UK there's voluntary voting as well, and I think, you know, similarly, uh, there isn't the type of debate that you're hoping for uh, there either. Oh, but, certainly not. Right. But I do, you know, but I do uh, laud your kind of optimism. But also, I think I think the idea of doing something differently could create a different outcome here because it is out of the norm and it would be a, a sort of circuit breaker on, um, you know, the current level of debate. So, you know, I started off being a bit sceptical of your idea, but I'm warming (laughs) to it. Uh, And also, I think you should definitely be the nominated researcher for evaluating such a a policy change. (laughs) We'll run it. We'll just run it in a a handful of seats and, you know, see if we can run an RCT. Um, Look, I mean, my counter to that is something like the momentum um, group within Labor, you know, that whether you like or, or dislike Jeremy Corbyn, it's going against the trend of, of 
party, you know, of um, parliamentary democracies around the world. Mm. Australia, I'm, you know, genuinely worried about. And um, and it manifests as, um, not yet, but it will manifest as corruption and lack of accountability and lack of transparency because what interest do the parties have in in arguing for any of those things? Well, thank you for that policy <laughs> present, Jill. <laughs> uh, Sorry, Nikki. No, by all means. Um we might keep the conversation moving and listen to the final clip about what policies could make the world better in the future. Over to you, Sophie. There were some amazing responses to our questions, but when casting a light on our policy failures and forecasting our policy future, there was just one common response that kept shining through. Have a listen. I'm Professor Susan Scott. I'm a theorist and I specialise in general relativity theory, black holes and gravitational waves. I think the big one for me is that I believe we will see a wealth of science policy made in the future to do with things like climate change, pollution of our water systems and oceans, biodiversity and generally the health of our planet, our home. Our very survival depends on it. I'm Professor Mark Howden. I'm the Director of the Climate Change Institute at ANU and I'm also a Vice Chair on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. In spite of the fact that we've got an incredible demand from the public for policies in relation to climate change, energy, greenhouse gas emission reduction, uh, we haven't seen those come to fruition for various political reasons. And that's a shame because we really do need to act on this for all sorts of reasons. We need to act because the climate change issue is pressing. Uh, We have to reduce our emissions Uh, immensely uh, starting from now if we are to meet the 1.5 degrees target. Climate policy is also really important in terms of drought and at the moment uh, we haven't got an effective national drought policy. My name is Paul Burke. I'm an economist at the Crawford School of Public Policy. A suite of policies to help renewables onto the grid, remove fossil fuel subsidies, price carbon and use of mechanisms such as reverse auctions, solar parks and renewable portfolio obligations, RPO schemes, that help to level the playing field and bring this new exciting technology, wind and solar, onto the grid of countries such as Indonesia. I'm Vivian Holmes, I'm an Associate Professor at ANU College of Law. Well, we need a holistic policy that addresses climate change, environmental degradation and biodiversity loss. I think that would be my absolute key priority for 2019. I'm Nicholas Brown. I'm in the School of History in the College of Arts and Social Sciences. It's an easy answer. It's a very complex problem, but I think clearly environmental change, global warming, uh, and the kinds of inequalities that are going to be increasingly associated with with climate change uh, is the issue that we absolutely have to address, but it's such a a huge, beguiling issue to address. But environmental sustainability is the challenge of the future. Well, we come to climate change, and it's been mentioned a few times earlier, but I suppose it makes a lot of sense that a few, more than a few academics around ANU think that that is the one policy we should be focusing on for 2019. I want to start with you, Maya, as the youngest member of the the panel here, um, and possibly someone who will be dealing with the effects of climate change for the longest. What, What did you take away from what we just heard? I think climate change is something that affects everyone. Like in those clips we just heard, it's not just the scientists that are talking about it. It's people from all throughout the university. And I think that it's just really sad that despite the amount of 
public demand and public want for change. It's just not happening. And we've had a few podcasts in the past about, you know, the consultation between scientists and policymakers. I just want to ask, like, why is that not happening? Like, why are we not getting any change here in Australia? Politics. Sorry, it's my answer to everything. It's <laughs> <laughs> convenient answer, isn't it? But then, well, I've got a question for, for Quentin, you know, who's working sort of in this policy area. Do you think a Labor government will – what do you think a Labor government will do? Well, Labor set out its policies and it's got more policies to come and uh, without – being political or partisan, it's quite clear to me that those policies are clearly going to be in the direction of what the people were interviewed were talking about. Uh, you know, we've had the Bill Shorten statements in the context of a national energy guarantee, the uh, statements about what the target is for 2030. That's uh, a materially better, substantial improvement over the current uh, government's policy. So that's definitely a step in the right direction. I think the the point that was highlighted by all of those people who just interviewed is really it's not just an Australian issue. Of course, it's a global issue. And uh, we actually have to not only do what we need to do here in Australia, but there has to be a global effort. And that's not just about 2019 or 2020. It's it's over the next uh, few decades. And, uh, you know, Sir David Attenborough made some statements in Poland a couple of days ago uh, talking about an existential issue in the context of uh, the potential fallout from uh, business as usual. And I think mm. that that needs to be highlighted, but it also needs to be highlighted how we get those pathways. Paul Burke talked about those pathways in terms of pricing carbon, the other issues about, you know, how we how we how we can do this better. But I think also to get your point, Jill, and so I just want to rather than just say, yeah, let's let's do the pathway stuff and and wish everything's going to be happy. <laughs> because we we in Australia have a have, have a history about what, what happened in climate change. You know, yeah. so so we had policies in play to do something about climate change. We fought an election. Indeed, climate change is one of the key issues of the uh, two thousand and seven election that elected uh, Kevin Rudd into uh, to the Prime Minister's office. We had another key election in terms of uh, Julie Gillard's election, <laughs> uh, although uh, there was concern about whether she promised or didn't promise X, Y, or Z. But so it has been there. And of course, the, the government that was elected in 2013 with Tony Abbott, they actually did away with a whole range of mm. uh, carbon price. So, so the fact is, Australians did vote. <laughs> uh, that wasn't the only issue on the table in 2013, but they That's did the vote. Though, right? So, so Australians, there are Australians who are concerned about their energy prices. They're afraid of a whole range of things that will happen in the context of actually doing something about climate change. So, I think that's part of what needs to be addressed. It's not just because Australians don't care. I think most Australians do care about these issues. It's just that they need to get a package that actually works for them. And I think that's part of what we'll go through, I think, in the next election in 2019. We'll hopefully get a package that, that actually makes sense, does something realistic, does something that's meaningful and actually leads to the to a better set of outcomes. And it's not just climate change. It's just given the headlines, climate change, climate change, climate change. Biodiversity was mentioned by those people interviewed. And the other one that's dear to my heart is the issue of water. Water is a major crisis right now in the world, and it tends to get ignored. It gets the sort of the second or third order priority. It's a huge challenge right now in India. It's a big challenge to us in Australia, and we need to get that right, and we're not getting it right. So about every four months or so, we ask, we ask the Australian population, what's the most important issue facing the country? Uh, the top answer is always economics or jobs, you know, something about 
you know, making sure my kids have a job. Uh, second is usually a tie between immigration and better governance. Well, that's the better governance one's only relatively recent, the last couple of years. Over the last year, environment's crept up into second or third spot out of basically nowhere. Uh, it was it was popular in the early 2000s. People were talking about it. And then leading up to the 2007 election, as you say, Quentin, and then it just went back off the radar, I think because people were sick of the, the back and forth about the carbon tax or yeah, you know, we, what we an also, emissions trading system. But we also have like. a drought. <laughs> okay. And it, it so very if you look at droughts, I mean, I haven't looked at the numbers, mm-hmm. but if you look at droughts in Australia, that'll, I think, will be connected to how people's attitude about the environment. At least, at least that was true for 2007. Yep. And I wanted to pick up on Maya's point about this uh, mismatch between, you know, what the what the public want in relation to climate change and what uh, is actually happening uh, in terms of, uh, you know, the politics uh, of it and in terms of the outcomes of policy. And I think, you know, in some ways that uh, we need to step back from uh, this being about climate change policy to a more broader question about uh, how policies get made. Um, and I'm optimistic uh, in the sense that there are lots of uh, you know, innovations uh, happening in how to engage the public in the process of public policy, whether that's through citizen juries or through, you know, real kind of new forms of participatory policymaking where, uh, you know, co-design where the public sits alongside the public servants and the politicians to design policy. That gives me a bit of hope that those you know, public voices will be heard uh, and acted upon. Um, but yeah, it feels like, you know, that's part of a long-term solution really to, to get this better, a better reflection of what the public wants in the climate change debate. It is a debate that's been going on for many years and Quentin's kind of given us a brief tour of the political history in Australia. Do you think we're going to move over this issue and start taking action and we'll look back on this time as a period of what were we thinking? We didn't have a climate policy or will we be having the exact same conversation in 2029? What do you think, Jill? Look, at the risk of at the risk of sounding partisan, you know, here as well. And, you know, full disclosure again, I used to work for the coalition. Um, there's signs of optimism if the Labor government is, is elected. I think if I think we'll still get uh, a decent sized crossbench in the Senate uh, because voters are just moving away from the major parties, you know, in droves at the moment. So we are still going to get a crossbench, but the crossbench as they stand at the moment has shown willingness to at least talk about climate change uh, on issues such as uh, getting children off Nauru as well and mandatory detention more broadly. I think we are going to see a relatively progressive parliament here. If Bill Shorten's got the wherewithal to actually try to push something through, you know, I think we'll probably see a carbon tax, hopefully early in the term, so that by the end of the next government, whether it's a two-term or a one-term or a three-term or a five-term or however long, that a carbon tax or some kind of emissions trading scheme or emissions pricing scheme will be embedded and we will be looking back and thinking, wow, the, you know, the sky didn't fall in. But Jill, I think part of the problem here is we're looking at it election by election, term by term. There's no real like long term policy thinking. Absolutely right. I mean, in my defence, this is my job, right, (laughs) to look at things election by election. But absolutely, and this is why voters so so angry. And and probably I shouldn't talk about voters. I should talk about them in the context of citizens, right? People are furious. Look, we. 
in all fairness, uh, there are policies that are outlined to 2030 in the context of uh, carbon emissions in Australia and other countries are signed up. So there is some 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 consideration of a longer term, even though it's 11 years or so is not, not very far away. I think I like to go back to Sue's point. I think we've got a real problem in Australia and indeed in other democracies. We can see it in Brexit. We can see it in the United States. We can see it in other sorts of ways in terms of the populism. I don't think the systems that we have in play at the moment or in place at the moment are actually working the way they need to work or the way they've worked in the past. I think things are happening too rapidly in terms of global change, not just in terms of climate change. I don't think we have the representation that we need to have, and I don't just mean in terms of MPs and diversity, which we do need to have. I'm talking about what the voice of the people is. It doesn't seem to get very well reflected in the, every three or four or five years, depending which electoral uh, term of office we have in whichever country we're in. I don't, don't think that's working. I think we have to fix this. We have to come up with new mechanisms that allow us to get that voice of the people in a whole range of perspectives. It'll obviously differ, but that voice has to be heard. And it doesn't seem to be heard at the moment. There's a whole range of things that aren't being heard in, this, in Australia. Uh, and then I think also gets back to this issue of transparency and accountability. People who make decisions that, in my view, are contrary to the national interest, we need to know about it when they make those decisions. And we need to see that. And we need to be maybe made very visible. And I think those sorts of things are required. I don't have all the answers. I'm not suggesting that. But I'm telling you, I don't think it's working at the moment. I don't think it's fixed. And although we might get a, a better outcome in the next election, that's all well and good. It's only... Only will only last so long because you know there were people who were very hopeful when Barack Obama was elected mm. president, and guess who came after Barack Obama? So I think we need to have processes in place that allow for for much more effective voice and much more effective long term thinking. So I agree with Maya as mm. well on that. Well, you might not have all the answers, Quentin, but I will ask you for at least one answer. What is your policy recommendation for 2019? If you could see just one. I would recommend that we focus in on indigenous issues here in Australia. I think we've neglected them far too long. I think we have this issue about the Uluru Statement from the Heart. There's a dialogue. I'm not suggesting we do X, Y, or Z, but we've got to have a, a major dialogue between the First Peoples of Australia and what was going on, what's happened in the past, the reconciliation, the true reconciliation. I think that's in our long-term interest. We, we've walked away from that for too long. Uh, let's actually start to engage in 2019. We won't finish it in 2019, but let's actually make a meaningful step in a proper way in a partnership with the Indigenous people of Australia. I think um, this is this is an area in which, again, people are so much more progressive and so much further ahead than governments. Um, and I think, you know, the Australian people always sort of shocked me in terms of, of how forward thinking we are in so many ways. In a lot of ways, we're very conservative as well. But um, I think it's, you know, the kind of flip side, I guess, to the cynicism is that it's heartening to see individuals and communities move ahead of the government, not being wait, not, not waiting to be led. Well, that is all we have time for today, unfortunately. But I want to say a big thank you to everyone on the panel, Quentin, Jill, Sue and Maya. Thank you very much. Thank you, Nick. And Merry thank Christmas. You. Merry Christmas to all. Merry Christmas. And this was the final episode of Policy Forum Pod for the year. And I should also add, it's the last episode for both myself and Maya. Uh, for me personally, this has just been a fantastic opportunity to be able to sit in this seat and have these amazing discussions with such a varied uh, range of expertise um, at the ANU. 
Uh, I want to say a big thank you to everyone at the Policy Forum team. A thank you to our listeners. And um, obviously, almost goes without saying, but a big thank you to Martin Pierce. I wouldn't be where I am today without Martin and his encouragement, his patience, and his at times brutal honesty. Um, so th- thank you. And that's almost a goodbye from me. And for me, well, I found working on Policy Forum Pod to be incredibly fun. It's been challenging. I've definitely learned a lot. Um, You know, I came here being like, what is policy? I don't understand a thing about policy. And now you know exactly what policy is. Yeah, no. (laughs) But, you know, policy affects everyone and it affects everyone everywhere. And so it's really important to understand and to wrap your head around. And, you know, as... I'm honoured to be part of such a really amazing team. I don't know how, but we managed to pull off a podcast every single week without fail. It's been challenging, but, you know, without Martin, without Nikki and without all of our presenters here, it wouldn't happen. So thank you. Well, as predicted earlier in the pod, Martin is fulfilling his role as drunk uncle at the Christmas party. He has reappeared and apparently wants the microphone back. Given that he is still my boss for the next few days, I think I'll let him have it. Yeah, well, thanks, Nikki. Thank you for having me back on your podcast. I, I didn't have much choice. <laughs> have much choice. Uh, I have been wandering around the Policy Forum Pod Christmas party. I've been mingling. I've been socialising with the guests, and I actually found something. Someone they in the photocopy room. I don't know what she was up to. But <laughs> And I would like to introduce her, which is the person who's done all of these fabulous interviews for us, which is Sophie. Hi, Sophie. Hello, Martin. So, Sophie, I am going to vox pop you in the way that you have vox popped some of the academics. So what was your highlight in doing the vox pops? Oh, I just love getting to speak with such a huge range of academics. There's some research areas that I didn't know even existed before doing this project. And what is your policy recommendation for 2019? What is your gift to the world, Sophie? My gift to the world? This podcast? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Policy recommendations. Well, the biggest one that came up was climate change, and that's one that I completely support. So um, I really hope that that comes through in the policy sphere. I think it certainly did in some of the contributions we have heard there. Well, thank you, Sophie. It's been fabulous hearing all of your interviews. I think you've done a terrific job and uh, really appreciate the contribution you've made to the podcast. Thanks so much, Martin. I've loved getting to do all this. So on the subject of thanks, I just want to add a personal note of thanks to both Maya and to Nikki. Policy Forum Pod is a huge undertaking for us. It requires an enormous amount of planning, an enormous amount of scripting, an enormous amount of research, and I do almost none of it because I've got two people who work with me who are brilliantly talented and have pulled us all out of all manner of holes over the over the last year. Um, so, Maya, thank you so much. Your fantastic podcasts, uh, many of which were in the sort of international relations sphere, some of our best listened podcasts. You have basically set the bar that we all desperately try and get over. So thank you very much. Thanks, Martin. It's been wonderful working with you. And Nikki, uh, thank you very much for all of your work and all of your patience and resilience in putting up with me, um, but, but but mostly all of your brilliant contributions to both Policy Forum and Policy Forum Pod. And I, I think I speak on behalf of the listeners there who say, you know, in, in saying thank you so much for all of the great stuff you've done, some great podcasts in there, but also your great contributions in terms of thinking this through. 
Thanks, Martin. I'm honoured and it's a, I'm quite sad to leave as well. Hopefully we can get you both back at some point as special guests on a future podcast. So uh, I'll sign off here, but as a final Christmas present, I'll spare you the usual reminder about how you can get in contact with us on social media. We won't bug you by saying you can reach us on Apps Policy Forum on Twitter <laughs> or Asia Pacific Policy Site on Facebook or emailing us at podcast at policyforum.net. And we definitely won't ask you to leave us a quick review on iTunes. Don't do it because it's a 30-second action. It uh, would be a big help in, to us in getting the word out about the podcast. So we wouldn't possibly think of asking you to do that. So don't worry. I'm not going to ask you to do anything at all. Instead, I'm just going to say thank you very much for listening, both to this podcast and over the course of the whole year. And we'll look forward to seeing you in the new year. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.